0: So 15 years ago, the film Passion of the Christ was released in theaters. Can you believe that? It was 15 years ago. I heard that the other day, and I couldn't believe it. It feels like just yesterday, but it was 2004. I wasn't even a Christian when that movie came out. And Passion actually still holds the record for the highest-grossing R-rated movie of all time. $370 million in the U.S. alone. A Relevant Magazine just published an article talking about the response to the movie when it first came out. And a lot of Christians were really excited about this movie because it was a movie that was depicting Jesus, a Christian movie that was made with some semblance of production value, right? I mean, that can be rare with Christian movies, quality filmmakers, good actors, decent cinematography. It was like the Christian's dream movie. The bar is really low for us. But for all the money it earned... Top fil- film critics actually rated it really low. Listen to some of their criticisms. From The Guardian, "The relentlessness of the whippings, beatings and hammerings of nail goes way beyond dramatic necessity and into some kind of S&M branch of fundamentalism." The New Republic said this, "Gibson's film, virtually stripped of Jesus' incandescent views, is little more than a record of one of the thousands of barbarities committed by the Romans in Judea." New York Times, it's so relentlessly focused on the savagery of Jesus's final hours that it seems to arise less from love than from wrath and to succeed more in assaulting the spirit than in uplifting it. There's one thing to note about these criticisms though. As the article in Relevant points out, negative reviews for passion actually strike a different tone than the typical bad movie takedowns. Rather than craft centric uh, contempt that would mark a normal critical review, the relevance says that the many who opposed Passion took postures of outright disgust. The movie wasn't so much bad as it was offensive. It wasn't incompetently made so much as it was painful to sit through. Listen to what Roger Ebert had to say, though. He was a former Catholic altar boy. What Gibson has provided for me, for the first time in my life, is a visceral idea of what the passion consisted of. That his film is superficial in terms of the surrounding message, that is that we get only a few passing references to the teachings of Jesus, is, I suppose, not the point. This is not a sermon or a homily, but a visualization of the central event in the Christian religion. Take it or leave it. He went on to say that while he was no longer religious, the passion of the Christ, um, he saw the passion, in the passion of Christ the idea that it is necessary to fully comprehend Jesus' sacrifice if Christianity is going to make any sense. So I think Ebert was on to something. The crucifixion of Jesus is the central event in the Christian religion. And it's an event that makes us want to look away. Why? We've seen more gruesome movies, right? It's not the most violent movie out there, right? There are eight Saw movies. <laughs> eight. Someone saw fit to make eight of these, and some people have seen fit to see every single one. And these are movies that are based off the torture of individuals at the delight of a maniac. So it's, it's not the gore. And I'm not saying that uh, Saw has great reviews. I'm sure it doesn't. <laughs> but the crucifixion is hard to look at because it reveals truth about ourselves, and it reveals truth about God. See, even as Christians, we can skim over the crucifixion to the resurrection or to the ascension of Jesus into heaven or to the return of Jesus uh, when he renews all things, when he wipes away every tear, when there's no pain. We love that, and we should, because we were made for that. But the crucifixion is where we lose people. Resurrection, eternal life, no more tears, that's what everybody wants. But they want it without the cross. The cross reveals the truth about us and the truth about God that can be hard to swallow. Truth that we don't want to face. The crucifixion is humanity's self-portrait in two ways. It reveals the truth about the hostile state of our natural bent toward God and one another apart from his intervention we reject him and we harm one another not only that it pictures the just end of such a relationship the cross forces us to come to the terms to come to terms with god's wrath god's settled opposition towards sin and evil the cross is where our sin and the just consequence for our sin are shown in the same place of course that's hard to look at right of course, you might want to walk out of the theater. If we pause at the cross, and we should, it can get uncomfortable. The crucifixion calls us a needy people. and Not just that, it highlights our greatest need, which is reconciliation with God. Our line of the creed today is that we believe that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified. This is what Christians believe. That Jesus, at a particular time, under a particular Roman governor, suffered and was put on a cross. More than that, we believe that Jesus was crucified for a reason. Not just that he was another victim of ancient Roman brutality. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about our need for the crucifixion. God's provision through the crucifixion. And what our response should be to the crucifixion. So our need. God's provision and our response. Now to talk about our need, we've got to go all the way back to the beginning, to our first parents in the garden. By the end of Genesis 1, God has created this marvelous world with humanity as its masterpiece, made in his image. The Bible says that after God created mankind, that his creation was very good. Look with me at Genesis 1:28, Right after the creation of humanity, God says this, or the Bible says this, and God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. So God blessed them. God gave them a job and gave him authority, gave them authority to do that job. Under his authority, he gave them dominion over life. Adam and Eve's job was to cultivate life on earth. In other parts of the creation account, it talks about how God placed them in a garden to tend. God gave them everything except one thing. The Bible talks about these two trees that were in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. They weren't allowed to eat the fruit from the second tree. That tree and that command not to eat the fruit stood as a reminder that their dominion was not ultimate, that they were under the authority of God, the one who made them. Genesis 3 portrays an exchange between Eve and the serpent, who we know as Satan. Look with me at the beginning of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the fields that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Adam and Eve chose to listen to a serpent, an animal that God had actually given them dominion over instead of their own creator who had dominion over them. Out of the two trees in the garden, they choose the one that God says will bring death instead of the one that's called the tree of life. And to summarize, they plunged humanity into this cycle of sin and death that we experience to this day. Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden to work cursed land. And by the end of Genesis 3, they no longer even have access to the tree of life, even if they wanted it now. The last verse of Genesis 3 says, He, God, drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is the base coat of paint that shows our need for God. This is our lineage. This is the legacy that we belong to. Our first parents rejected God. They aligned themselves with Satan in an attempt to gain independence from their Creator. In an attempt to be like him in his authority, but not like him in his kind, gracious, and loving character. And all their children carry this. We all carry this. The story goes on to tell us that their first child, Cain, murdered their second child, Abel. Setting the tone for millennia of human strife and suffering. If we're putting vocabulary to this, we'd call this original sin or total depravity, this is the inherent mark and bent towards sin that we all carry because of our first parents. We're not all as sinful as we could be, but there's not a part of us that's untouched by sin. Think of it as if sin were embedded in our DNA. We're not born with a bent toward loving God and loving one another. We're born as rebels, just like our parents before us. Now Paul encapsulates this in Romans 5.12 when he says, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Same chapter in verse 17, he says, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Death reigns in this world because of sin. And we see this all over. We see it in the news, even locally, with kidnappings and murders. We see it globally, with systemic oppression. But it also exists in us. Psalm 53, 2 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the Bible paints us all as sinners to start out. And if you're not convinced uh, and you'd like to know if you are, just picture your thoughts, your memories, maybe even your plans projected on these two screens back here for everyone to see. Right? Praise God that that's impossible. I've heard another preacher put it this way. We sin in our thoughts. Aren't you glad people can't see what we're thinking? We sin in our words. Have you said or typed anything you really regret? We sin in our deeds. Have you done anything you weren't supposed to do? We sin in our motives. Do you do good things but just to manipulate others to get praise? Do you get angry and upset when people don't compliment you for the good things that you've done? We sin through commission. We do stuff we're not supposed to do. We sin through omission. We don't do the things we're supposed to do. We walk in this, in big ways and in what we would call small ways. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Ephesians. He's writing to the church, explaining the work of God in the lives of believers. And he brings them back to where they were, to where we all are before God's intervention. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So our sinful nature is to align with the prince of the power of the air, the same serpent, the same spirit that Adam and Eve aligned with carrying out the desires of our bodies and of our minds with no regard for God. Paul says that apart from Christ, they were children of wrath. And then he says this, like the rest of mankind. This is all of us. And this is where looking at the crucifixion can make us squeamish. Children of wrath? In the line of fire of God's settled opposition against sin and evil? me? God is a God of wrath? I thought he was a God of love, rich in mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He is. And were he to tolerate sin and evil with no end, he wouldn't be. Were God to never bring justice to our hostility toward him and toward one another, he would be unfair in the cruelest way. See, when you're the perpetrator Wrath is ugly, but when you're the victim or someone you love is the victim, you want wrath. You want somebody to get indignant when the vulnerable are abused or oppressed. You get indignant yourself. We're made in the image of God. We feel this. I was filling out a developmental questionnaire for for one of our kids, and one of the questions asked, is the child aware when something is unfair? This was for zero to five years old. It's a marker of human development to recognize when something's unfair, when something's unjust, even if it's recognizing that one sibling got a donut and the other one didn't. Not that we unequally distribute donuts in our house. It's just just an example, but it's true. One helpful illustration I've heard before, and I had a pastor who said this, um, he never thought that he could kill another human being until he held his baby daughter for the first time. I mean, that sounds crazy at first, right? But um, the overwhelming love that he had for her came with an overwhelming desire to protect her against anyone that would do her harm. I'm not talking about hypervigilance. God loves his creation. And the worst thing for creation is for humanity to be in God's place. God has wrath for sin, and we're responsible for sin in the world. So where should that wrath be directed? Paul says that we are in the line of fire. And friends, God's wrath is scarier than that pastor's wrath. Let me tell you, all of our sin is sin against God himself. David himself says in Psalm 51, as he's lamenting his own adulterous and murderous life, he writes this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The crucifixion calls us children of wrath. That's why we want to look away. So the crucifixion makes us aware of our need. And one of the main ways it makes us aware of our need is that the crucifixion is a provision for us. It's not just a message. Jesus suffered and died for a reason. It's like when someone gives you a bar of soap for your birthday or deodorant. That provision should make you aware of something about yourself, right? (laughs) Body odor. Well, God sending his son to die for our sin is a needed gift that tells us a lot about ourselves. Let's look at the provision of the crucifixion. Let's look at uh, what God accomplished to meet the neediness that we have. So 700 years before Jesus was even born, Isaiah prophesied this. Look with me at Isaiah 53.3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, let's skip down to verse 10 because I want to highlight this. Yet it was the will of the Lord The events and purpose of Jesus' suffering and death on the cross were predicted centuries before he even walked the earth. Isaiah looked forward to a Messiah who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, someone who would suffer because of our sin. He says, we like sheep have all gone astray. It's not that far off from what Paul was saying in Romans and Ephesians. We're all sinners. We're all following our own desires. That's what he's saying. But then we see that it's not just because of us that Jesus suffers and dies. It's for us. It says, the Lord laid our iniquity on him. It says, it was God's will to crush him. That this Messiah would make an offering for our guilt so that many might be called righteous. We had a problem, which is our sin. God had a solution to crush his son in our place. Crucifixion was common in the Roman Empire, especially at the time of Jesus. Uh, Rome had bought their peace through brutality, occupation, oppression, and the cross was a symbol that they wouldn't tolerate any threat to their peace. Every once in a while, the Jews would revolt against Roman occupiers, and there are even records that talk about how they would crucify those rebels and line the streets with them as a reminder. You don't want to be like these people. And in Jesus' case, crucifixion uh, would often involve, as in Jesus' case, crucifixion would often involve flogging before him. Now, this was a prep time where they would strip the person naked or nearly naked, Tie them to a piece of stone and lash them with a flagrum, which would be a wooden handle with leather straps that had either metal or stone attached to the ends. This is what Jesus would have endured. We read it as a short line in the Bible. Uh, Accounts just say he was scourged and delivered to be crucified. But there's a lot to that scourging, and I'm not even going to get into the, the most graphic detail. But the scourging itself was enough to kill a man on its own. Mind you, Jesus didn't even sleep the night before this. From there, Matthew recounts in chapter 27 of his gospel that Jesus was taken by the soldiers who mocked him, beat him, and punctured his head with a crown of thorns. The apostle John, in his account, writes about how Jesus carried his own cross. He carried it outside the city walls. Luke says that he was led away with two criminals. Of course, Jesus couldn't carry the cross all the way, and that's why we read in Luke that uh, they compelled a bystander named Simon to help him carry it. And when it came time to be crucified, they would have attached the main post to the crossbar and taken thick nails and pierced each hand of his outstretched arms. Then the same to both his feet, one over the other, nailed to the post. These are some of the most sensitive parts of the body. Can you feel what the creed is saying when it says he suffered under Pontius Pilate? After that routine was to just drop the post into a hole in the ground. And the main cause of death by crucifixion was slow asphyxiation because when your body is hung in that position, you lose the ability to use your diaphragm. So you're forced to push up on your nailed feet or sometimes they would provide a wood wedge that would hold you up to prolong the suffering. The Apostle John writes that Jesus' mother was there. We just talked about the miraculous birth of Jesus last week. Now Mary is at the foot of the cross. And one of the last things Jesus does is to ask his friend John to take care of his mom. Luke says in chapter 19, verse 33, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. He asks God to forgive them. But the worst part of his suffering comes when that three-hour period of darkness comes in the middle of the day. And Jesus says this on the cross, My God, My God, why have you forsaken me? It was in this moment that Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath for us, in our place. It's here where, for the first time, God the Son experiences separation from God the Father. It's here where Jesus, fully human and fully God, atones for the sins of mankind. It's here where the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was given to him and his righteousness was given to us. Our debt was paid by the blood of Jesus. In the garden, our first parents substituted themselves for God. In our lives, we've done the same. On the cross, God substituted himself for us. In Romans 5.19, Paul says, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Luke says that in that moment at the temple of God, just down the street, the veil, this curtain that was intended to separate God and man from in the most holy place was torn in two. Jesus opened access to God for all through his substitutionary atonement for our sin. We no longer need a high priest to communicate with God for us. We have access through Jesus. And there's a whole bunch more that could be explained about that, and I'd love to, but we don't have time. The bottom line is that Jesus removed the chasm between us and God through the cross. The Apostle John says that after this, Jesus said, It is finished. Jesus's work was accomplished then and forevermore. The price had been paid once and for all, never to be paid again. Then Luke records this as Jesus's final words in uh, chapter 23, 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This is the central event in the Christian religion. We worship a God who is voluntarily executed by men and punished by God on our behalf. That makes people uncomfortable because it makes no sense. It didn't make sense back then. It doesn't really make sense to people now. It's like Ebert said, if you don't understand Christ's sacrifice, Christianity won't make any sense to you. The Apostle Paul says in a couple places that uh, our world views this whole thing as foolish. If we get past the obstacle of even seeing our need for the crucifixion, we still might even ask, why would God do such a thing? Romans 5, 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross isn't just a picture of our depravity. It's a picture of God's love for us. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for good people. He died for us. Praise God, he died for us. God has given himself to meet our need. So how should we respond? In Acts 2, after Jesus has resurrected, ascended to heaven, and commissioned his apostles to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, Peter preaches his first sermon. It's a sermon empowered by the Holy Spirit in the public square of Jerusalem, and he essentially walks through who Jesus is, tells the crowd that he is Lord and Christ and that they're the ones who crucified him. They're cut to the heart and they say, what should we do? And I hope that we feel a bit like that right now. He tells them, repent. How should we respond to the crucifixion? Repent. Repent. Correct our erroneous thoughts about the cross. Turn from the lies that we believe about ourselves and the lies that we believe about God because we need the cross. If you're a Christian, every beautiful verse you can quote is meaningless without the cross. God so loved the world that he what? Oh yeah, gave his only son on the cross. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us on cross the cross. Romans 8, 28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose because of the cross. One of my favorites, Revelation 21, 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Because Jesus died Jesus cried, and Jesus passed away on the cross for us. But really, when Peter addresses this crowd in Acts 2, he's talking to non-believers. And when he says repent, he was calling them to turn away from their sin and to turn toward God. Because here's the thing, and this is the really hard thing about this. It's another obstacle or offense of the cross. This is for everybody, and it's not for everybody. And I would be an unfaithful preacher if I told you otherwise. John 3.36 says it bluntly. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. These are Jesus' words. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This gift stands extended to you, but if you don't accept it, how can it apply to you? To reject it is to remain on the old path of humanity, the path of destruction. Now, we're intentionally not the type of church that uses hell or punishment as a scare tactic to get people to believe in Jesus. But we are a church that believes in the cross. And we're a church that loves you enough to tell you the words of Scripture. Acts 4.12, And there is salvation in no one else, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I'll close just echoing using the words of the Apostle Paul. For I delivered to you as the first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures.